0: Welcome to My Favourite Beatles Song, the podcast where we celebrate the music of the Beatles with a distinguished guest. My name is Tim Tucker and today I'll be speaking with Neil Crossley. Neil is a freelance editor and writer specialising in music, TV and technology. His work has appeared in publications such as The Guardian, The Independent, The Financial Times and The Times. But Neil is also a singer-songwriter with the band Furlined and was a member of International Blue, a Scott Walker-influenced pop croon project album produced by Tony Visconti. Welcome, Neil. Hi, Tim. How are you doing? Yeah, all right, thanks, yeah. Where would you rate your level of Beatle fandom, from naught to 10?
1: Difficult. In, t- in terms of feel, probably you can't, you probably, probably you can't sort of uh, create two different charts, but in terms of overall love and feel, I would say eight. In terms of my fandom, in terms of trivia, I would probably say about six. So you can decide to go for one of those. Yeah. I think eight's yeah. the
0: better one. Yeah, in terms of yeah, you, you yeah. how you appreciate their music. Yeah, yeah.
1: and that's, it's the feel for me. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah.
0: Have you ever had Neil any contact with the Beatles or their organisation? Any stories around that?
1: Mm, the the only thing which is pretty tenuous. Well, um, it's not that tenuous. Is I I did um, I wrote I co-wrote a song that was covered by Julian Lennon. Um, Back in 2014. Um, I did um I was involved in a project called International Blue. Uh and it's essentially it was Tony Visconti was producing it. Uh, a composer, a Dutch composer called Stefan Emma, was essentially writing the tracks and then sending four baritones, and it was myself, Glenn Gregory from Heaven 17, Liam McCahey from Cousteau and a late edition was Major. So he would he would send us the um the tracks with the top line melody and say, yeah. you know, could you write lyrics and can you um, then, then sing the track? So I wrote I I, I the lyrics and I went and recorded it in Bristol and I got pinged over to New York. And so I wrote a track called Sleep For England, which was um, all about my mum, because my mum wasn't very well at the time. And I remember being up there up north and saying to her one morning, how do you feel? And she said, oh, I could sleep for England. And I'd just been sent this track a few days before hadn't got any ideas and it was just one of those phrases i thought oh well that won't work will it and, and quite often as you know they can these things can work wow. so it just all came together really from that she pulls herself out from the bed close and she opens the curtains why stairs down to the valley where the So we did that. We, we, we showcased the album at Abbey Road, and then about um it, it was gonna be BMG were gonna run with it and take it, and some and Cobalt were gonna do it, and in the end, nothing happened, which was a shame because it was a really good album in the end. But about six months later, I got a call from the press guy who was doing it saying that um they wanted Julian Lennon to cover it. The deal was that we were gonna do all proceeds for the White Feather Foundation, which was um apparently he set it up. When his father was alive, when John Lennon was alive, they apparently had a conversation at one point. And John Lennon said, you know, look, if I die, um, if there's any way of sending a sign to you, um, it will be in the form of a white feather. And Julian Lennon, and I think, you know, the years went on after his father died. And then he happened to be, um, he was touring Australia, in nothing to do with music, I don't think. And he met this Aboriginal chief. And the first thing this Aboriginal chief did to him was give him this white feather. And he just said, shivers just went up his spine, you know. And so he then, I think with his mother, Cynthia, as well, they, they set up something called the White Feather Foundation, which is a sort of humanitarian and, um, and environmental, I don't say charity, but it, it, I, I don't know the exact role, but it's, it does good, basically. And, um, and so he covered it um, as a Christmas single. And it was very weird. To hear, because I thought at the time, I thought, oh, God, he's bound to change some of the words. And he didn't change any words. And it's very weird to hear something that you've written in your mum's kitchen. (laughs) (laughs) Sung by someone else, you know. Um, And then they did a video for it, which sort of reflected the theme of the song and sort of being elderly and sort of, you know, um, looking back on your life and that kind of thing. And so that was it, really. I never, I never really heard from Julian Lennon about it. Um, um, Did you like his version? No, I mean, I, th- I thought Julian's version was fine. I, I, I just don't think it, 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 it didn't change it, particularly in any way for me, apart from the fact that it was Julian Lennon singing it and, it. and so it had a new life, you know.
0: He does sound quite a lot like his father, doesn't he, when he sings? Um, he, he sings, does.
1: Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm pleased that it happens. And occasionally, I mean, you know, even just before we met now, I listened to his version and you do sort of think, well, it's quite incredible, really. I mean, I could have, I mean, obviously I'm I'm a sort of John Lennon fan specifically, but there is that link. Yeah, of course. um, And I'm, I'm glad that I've done it and I'm glad that he recorded it as well.
0: part of your journalism you produced beatles specials is that right i did yeah I, I got asked by a company called
1: anthem publishing in bath um to edit four issues uh, basically split into like two year period so going through four four sections of the beatles sort of gestate their uh, career really yeah um and it's it's funny the whole beatles thing is amusing in a way because i as i may have said before by the time i was 16 i kind of knew everything i felt i ever needed to know about the Beatles. You know. <laughs> particularly in terms of trivia. Yeah. But it is, but, but the minute you get back into it and you, you learn all this other stuff, you know, and some of it is, is quite witty. Some of it, there's there's like one where they're, they're driving up to some Doncaster or somewhere and they've got all the guitars strapped to the roof and one of them falls off, you know, and it's just, it's a Gretsch and it's smashed by this lorry or something. And they're all stood in the road watching this lorry disappear down the road, you know? And, um, and so there's all those things but yeah I enjoyed it and it gave me you know I mean obviously your your editing so your main thing is you're looking at that but it I don't think it really altered my perception of the Beatles in any way um but it just it brought it just broadened the context of it out a little bit I think I I also so I did something last year which was um, I got asked to do by a magazine which was um it was just a history of the cavern really you know from the Beatles. and so I ended up interviewing someone who's terrible, Mine, Debbie, Debbie Goldberg, someone like that, his father actually owned the cabin from 65, you know. And she knew McCartney really well. And that was that was a kind of, that was quite an inn. It gave you real, because I didn't realise when the cavern first opened, it was opened by a guy who'd been to Paris. So it was a real beatnik kind of jazz venue, you know. And people lots of people wearing, looking studious and wearing black polo necks, black turtlenecks, that kind of thing, and smoking guas, you know. But then I... But they, I the one thing that really stuck with me, I said, you know, what can you remember about, you know, the sounds uh, and the feelings? She said, she said, I will always remember the smell. It was just awful, you know, the bad <laughs> drains, you know, yeah. and it was just, and that she said, because you know, there was no, the condensation just dripped down on people, it dripped down on the band, and you can just imagine, it, you know. And she said, when she get the bus into town in her lunchtime from school, her and her friends they go to one of the Beatles sessions. And they get back on the bus and she said they would hear people holding their, see people holding their noses going, they've been to the cavern, that kind of thing, you know. She said you just stunk when you came out of there, you know.
0: um. (laughs) So the track you've chosen today is Paperback Writer which was the Beatles' 12th single, released on Friday the 10th of June 1966 in the UK and May the 30th in the US, um, with Rain as its B-side. It went into the charts in the UK at number two, kept off by Strangers in the Night by Frank Sinatra, but then soon reached number one. The song itself is credited to Lennon and McCartney, although it's largely considered a McCartney composition. John Lennon said in 1972, Paul wrote this. I think I might have helped with some of the lyrics, but it was mainly Paul's tune. The Beatles recorded the song in April 1966 as part of the sessions for the Revolver album, and it was released before the album came out in August. So why did you choose Paperback Writer as your favourite Beatles song?
1: It's more about the sound than the actual song. You know, if, if I went on composition particularly McCartney, I would go for another song. I'd go for something like uh, She's Leaving Home or something like that, but it's just the sound of it. And it just, whenever I've heard it over the years, whether it's on, a, on a, you know, the tiniest transistor radio as a kid or in a car radio, it always sounds fantastic whenever you hear it. And it's just, it's exhilarating and it's got such energy and um, joie de vivre really. And it just it just, it just drives forward. So it's more the sound and that whole era as well, where they're you know, where they're coming out, they're heading towards into sort of what became psychedelia. Um, you know, their look is changing. You see the photographs around that time, they're in the studio, they they have like tinted glasses on, everything's loosening up, everything's moving forward, and it just has that real feel of a forward-thinking song, you know. So it, it piles forward, and I just think it's a fantastic sound.
0: As you say, this driving guitar riff. And a host of kind of odd sounds around it, isn't there? In Buried in this, in this sort of production.
1: As I'm sure you know, I mean, one of the key factors is a guy called Jeff Emmerich, who was a young recording engineer. And I think, he, you know, when George Martin appointed him as the Beatles engineer, I think it put a few noses out of joint at Abbey Road, because, you know, it was, there were people who'd been there for decades, and this young upstart suddenly got the job. And I think one of the reasons it sounds so good is... Um, I mean, I heard that the Beatles, when they were over in the States, they really, really wanted to record at Stax um, because they loved the sound at or Motown. But someone said it, it, Stax were asking for too much money. I can't imagine that was an issue. I, that can't be right. But for whatever reason, it didn't happen. So what happened? They, the Beatles, were very keen. They, they wanted. They were saying to Emmerich, "Look, we want this sound." They were taking in Motown songs and saying, "We want, you know, James Jamerson, that kind of thing." And so what he started doing, he just started to experiment with the sound. And so the thing at Abbey Road, you know, it was so regimented in those days. They all all walked around with lab coats on. They had these these documents that were like guides. You know, you you were never allowed to place a microphone more than less than 18 inches from a speaker, that kind of thing. And Emmerich, just with, with McCartney thrusting him on, just completely changed all that. I mean, he... You know, he had these large Neumann U47 condenser tube mics, and he was shoving them right into the speaker. And he also, when he was recording the bass for um, Paperback Writer, which is part of its great sound, he was actually using a speaker, another speaker, as a microphone. There are two things that really uh, shocked me when I started looking more into this track. The first one is it's only about two and a half minutes long. It's two minutes 18, and I couldn't believe it. I thought I, I, thought I was seeing it wrong that you could pack all that in, you know. Um, and the other thing was, it's McCartney who plays the guitar riff, it's not George Harrison. Yeah. And Harrison plays the guide bass. And then, of course, one of, one of the things that makes it great is that McCartney then goes back in with a Rickenbacker bass to record the bass on top you know and just do all this amazing stuff like those sort of twiddle things that he does at the top
0: oh yeah beautiful Um, yeah
1: because I think this track, when they recorded it, was the start of what became the Revolver Sessions, and they needed a single... They got this one in the bag, and out it went, you know. Um, But this is the one where they were first experimenting with with those things, and I know they did the same on Ringo's drum kit, because Ringo came in one day, and he he heard it, and he said, what have you done with my drums? It sounds fantastic, you know. But he was actually... He wasn't suspended, but he was... He got a written warning. A microphone abuse. It's like John (laughs) Mackinac. Yes, a classic, isn't it? I, I don't actually remember hearing it as a kid when it came out because I was a bit too young for that. But I do remember hearing it early on, early 70s, it would pop on occasionally. And um, yeah, and it really, it really does. And I think that's a testament to the engineering and the production as much as anything, that it can sound that good.
0: Perhaps it's because those were innovations at the time. They've become refined since, haven't they, through digital especially now with digital equipment but back then they were making use of quite primitive equipment to make this stuff up including things like ADT's artificial or automatic double tracking which Ken Townsend another engineer on the project invented uh, that's where you take a copy of the lead vocal or whatever vocal and then put it slightly delayed so it sounds like thicker and again we can do that digitally now but that was done through tape tape and stuff which is crazy there's that sound which always leaps out to me. I don't know if you find this of when they sing that paperback, rah, 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 and it's like a little sort of echo with a with a phaser on it, which is apparently something called Steve. Well, I,
1: I read I read that on the on the recording before they put that on. There was this really um, uncomfortable silence at that point on the track, and so people don't. No one's really completely found out whether they meant to do it like that and then add the echo or whether they thought, oh my God, you know, we're going to have to fill that gap with something. The The other thing that I I should mention that I love about the sound of the track is that first beat of the kick drum, the first beat after the riff, it's it's almost like a pushed beat, you know, and and, and the bass and the drum, and it's that, it's just, and I saw... I suddenly, I, I went online. I was looking last night and I suddenly thought, I wonder if Beatles ever played it live. And there's this awful version of them doing it at the Budokan in Tokyo. And then there's a version of McCartney doing it. And the interesting thing is that the while he's got this great drummer in his band at the moment, the guy just, in my head, just doesn't nail it on the drums. He it doesn't get that push. Not the whole band don't either, you know, the same way the actual Beatles had it, you know.
0: Ringo is such an underrated drummer, don't you think? Oh, God.
1: I mean, and his drums. His drumming and his drums are fantastic on that song. They really are, yeah.
0: They dampened his drums by putting a sweater in the... In the and again, this hadn't been done before, amazingly. <laughs> I love the story of them writing it because back in those days, they did like spend time together writing, even then, in mid-'66. And he was driving to L- Lennon's estate and he got the phrase paperback writer in his head and he thought it sounds like that that could work. And his he says uh, it's classic McCartney anecdote. He says his aunt had told him, "You write all the time about love. Um, why don't you try writing about something else?" And then when he got there, he, he said we tr- we worked on it. But it, it sounds like McCartney was pretty much responsible for all of it.
1: I think so. Yeah, and uh, you know, yeah, I, I remember hearing about the auntie auntie Evie or whatever she was called. <laughs> It's quite a nice image, you know. Whenever they met, she's obviously berating him for not writing songs properly. <laughs> but yeah, I think they they did. They wrote it at Kenwood, didn't they? Which is John Lennon's place. And and of course, it references the Daily Mail. And I, I'm always intrigued that the Beatles would even get the Daily Mail. You know, they'd be sat there with the Daily Mail. But I think the Daily Mail comes up somewhere else in one of those songs or something. But uh, anyway, the Daily Mail is lying around. Um, and I suppose one other thing that hit me when I listened to it again was the fact that the composition wise, it doesn't really, it doesn't really evolve in any way. It's kind of stop, start, riff, first chorus. But the thing that, the thing that moves it forward as well is the narrative, of course, because, um, and I think I think they felt, McCartney felt pretty pleased with himself because yeah, up to that point, they still were writing songs about love. They were, you know, they were doing things like Norwegian Wood. But I think he thought that to write that sort of third person narrative, I think you know what I've read is they felt it was more like Dylan would do that kind of thing.
0: I'm trying to think of songs that they the Beatles had done before this that weren't about The only one I can think of is Nowhere Man from Rubber Soul. Yeah, Nowhere before. Man
1: the obvious one. Um yeah.
0: but they were pretty much all love songs or at least relationship songs, weren't they, apart mm. from that? Mm. And this is yeah. this is his first big kind of narrative isn't it for, for McCartney certainly where yeah definitely it goes on to be something of a thing for McCartney not not just with the Beatles but on into his own solo career he, he's really good at that storytelling I think mm. song but yeah this is certainly his first
1: there are some nice lines in it yeah I mean a dirty story of a dirty man his clinging wife doesn't understand I mean you know it's it, again it's a little bit flippant but it's nice I mean I, I always kind of smirk a bit with Paul because I kind of I always imagine him at school because he seems like the person would have all his pencils sharpened, you know, you know, well, 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 Lennon had a lot of drive. I think Lennon possibly by his own admission was a bit lazy at times, you know, and pre- they would all prefer to stay in bed. And then when, of course, when Epstein had died and they were having to go to the studio, it was McCartney who was getting up. And yeah, I mean, again, as you can see with this song, he was going into the studio after hours with Jeff Emmerich when everyone had gone home, I mean, like taking control of the song and making it his, his baby, really, you know. Um,
0: In fact, this yeah. is the turning point year, I think. Do you? Because um, if, if you yeah, think about definitely. it up till then, Lennon had definitely been the leader of the Beatles. He'd he'd yeah. he'd pretty much, he wrote the majority of the, I mean, they wrote together, but if you look at Hard Day's Night, for example, most of those songs are John Lennon's songs. Mm. Um, mm. And Paul's contributions were good. I mean, he had the odd massive contribution like Yesterday and All My Loving, yeah. but he wasn't quite rocking as much as Lennon, I don't think, until this year when he had some great tunes on revolver he had these singles yeah and then of yeah. course sergeant pepper and onwards
1: yeah i mean I, th- I think yeah creatively absolutely you know creatively and sort of physically actually physically putting in the hours you yeah know. um
0: yeah he's a restless creative isn't he
1: yeah i mean i think was it was it the case that they were all sort of married apart from him at this point or something yes although yeah. i think he, he'd been with he was with jane asher and that had broken up. i'm not sure when that happened so it could be possible that he was sort of Single at the time, so maybe he had—I don't know—maybe he just had physically had more time on his hands. It could be that, couldn't it?
0: Yeah, he uh, was—he's even today. I mean, you know, we speak at a time when he's released his third solo album, which he he played with during lockdown. That's classic, Paul, isn't it? He's just always wanting to be recording and writing. (laughs) I also, while we're on the lyrics, interesting that it should start as a letter, don't you think, dear sir or madam? So it's basically the song is a letter. Yeah, it's
1: great. Yeah, I was thinking about that last night. Actually, it is—it's a lovely intro. Yeah.
0: The book Beatles 66 by Steve Turner makes the point that as well as kind of all that hippie spirituality of Ginsburg and Leary and so on, this was also the time of things like Bond and David Bailey and the Avengers and Playboy. It was, And it was coincidentally, it was the same month that Time magazine ran the famous cover story of London, Swinging City. So it's, this is right in the middle of that when London becomes Swinging City sixties, do you know what I mean? It sort of sets the style for the world.
1: No, yeah, definitely. I mean that's there is that spirit of optimism of something happening or something about to happen. Um yeah. and just going back to what you were saying about sort of, you know, focusing on on the physical his lyrics. So there is, you know, there is these little bits of sort of reality trivia like the Daily Mail and little things that he sees about, you know, I guess not a lot of people were doing that. I mean, Dylan was doing it, but, um, you know, there's not a lot in that one. I think he obviously had more as he came on. And of course, he references Lear in there as well, which I know you spoke, Um, about on a a previous podcast. um, Yeah,
0: he was clearly an influence, wasn't he? Yeah, that's a good point, actually. It is the everyday. Whenever John goes into that kind of spiritual kind of strawberry fields type area, or on this single, it's Rain, isn't it, where he goes into the spiritual, you know, it's all in your head, man. Paul's quite often down to earth about the everyday suburbia or london streets and daily mail isn't it yes
1: i mean i guess another person who was doing it at the same time would be someone like ray davis i guess
0: this was a great year for music wasn't it we had we had the kinks with um a dedicated follower of fashion has that kind of feel doesn't it
1: i often wonder what paul mccartney and john Lennon thought of the kinks it's probably referenced somewhere but i've never bothered to look it up.
0: there's a few stories one is that i don't know if you've heard that song it's not one of their most famous now but um see my friends yeah. which which sounds like, it hasn't got a c-tar on it, but it sounds like it has it sounds quite Indian, and it yeah, predates it it's the only thing that predates the Beatles' Indian stuff
1: it does, it also almost sounds a bit like rain actually
0: yes, um, yeah see my friend. see my-
1: No, it, it does have a sort of aspirational thing to it, doesn't it? You're right. And like you said, there's all these figures at the time, like Vidal Sassoon, David Bailey, Karen Stamp, you know, people who just, but not, you know, people not not who just sort of pulled themselves up by the bootstraps, but just have that innate confidence in, in the exactly. same way that the Beatles, I'm still astonished about that first press conference when the Beatles go to America and how confident they are. You know, they're that's not phased, and, and people sort of say, oh, they all have that natural humour. I I always think Paul was a little bit more guarded than the rest. If you look back at those, whenever anyone says, says anything slightly cheeky, you can see him looking a bit nervous until he sees the reaction of the press. And then he starts smiling, you know, but the, the confidence that they had was was phenomenal. Can
0: you say something? No! Sorry! Next question! No, we need money first. <laughs> what do you think of the comment that hey, you're nothing but a bunch of British Elvis Presley? No, it's it's not true, it's not true! What <laughs> <laughs> your music does for these people? Uh,
1: I don't know, yeah. well, makes it it Pleases them, I think. Well, they must do, because they're buying it. Why does it excite them so much? Like do? We don't know really. I <laughs> <But laughs> can you yeah. another group and be managers? <laughs>
0: in terms of the songwriting you're a songwriter this is really sparse isn't it almost a one chord song if you look at the chord sheet yep. it's G7 with the occasional stray into C I
1: mean it's sort of it's like half a 12 bar it kind of goes G C then there's there's an A minor in there somewhere but um, bearing in mind what we know about McCartney and, and his you know he, he's fond of minors and minor 7s and, and that kind of thing it's surprising for him to write such what is essentially a basic song. You know, like you say, it's maybe just G and C, really. And that's kind of it, really.
0: I wonder if there was a a deliberate attempt, because there's a quote from McCartney before this, when I think this is when they were working. Yeah, it was when they were working on Rubber Soul. And he said to write a really good song with just one note in it, something like Long Tall Sally, is really very hard. Uh, Um, Now... I know this isn't got one note in it, but it's that sort of thing, isn't it? He yeah. he said at the time, it's the kind of thing we've wanted to do for some time. We get near it in the word. I suspect
1: that was informing his decision. If that was, you know, <clears throat> that was a relatively recent thought that he'd had, you know, obviously on his mind to basically, you know, to cut back and, you know, try and be creative by, you know, the whole less is more approach kind of thing.
0: Because it opens with the lovely harmonies, another sort of structural innovation in a way, I mean, it has been done before, but they don't open with an intro. They open with a B section, don't they? Yeah. Um, and that that's a really interesting blending of voices, isn't it? I know you work with other singers in harmony. Um, were mm. you impressed with the harmonies on this one?
1: Yeah, I was, although in a way, because it's the Beatles, I just almost took it for granted, really, you know, because I've heard the song so much. I mean, I, I do know, just reading about this, uh, they're, obviously, they're, you know, as it's been well documented, they were very influenced by the Beach Boys, and I think, um, the track Sloop John B has been mentioned in context of this. Aside from all, all the all the techniques and technology that they used on them, the, the, you can't get away from the fact that, in in a way, like siblings have, their voices fit together. That sonically, they, the, the timbre of their voices just works so well together. You know, because it's not always the case, is it? Quite often, it's, it's not quite right.
0: I think George Martin might have been instrumental in. In actually arranging the uh, the intro harmonies because they are quite strange the way they go across each other you end up in the third and fourth bars with a B note and a C note being sung at the same time
1: yeah which shouldn't work
0: paperback writer, writer. did you realise they were singing Frere Chaka uh, in the background vocals um, from on oh, paperback writer yeah yeah so um from so I read
1: that and I I couldn't I couldn't see where it was so i just swiftly moved on in my head, you know if
0: you listen to the third and fourth verses they come in you can really clearly hear especially in the stereo versions which most of them are okay. um you can hear in your right ear you can hear frero jacker from George, john oh, Lidl- right, okay. George.
1: it's a thousand pages give or take a few i'll be writing more in a week or two
0: i can make it longer if you like the start i can change it around, and i want to be a paperback writer But there was also the whole yardbirds and blues things coming on. And the the guitar riff um, John Lennon claimed was a nod to that kind of side of music, which was that heavier sound, which was just coming of what became the early roots of rock, really, wasn't it? Where you had like Eric Clapton, Jeff Beck, people like that. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, Lennon said in an interview in 1980, he said, paperback writer is the son of day tripper, meaning a rock and roll song with a guitar lick on a fuzzy, loud guitar.
1: Right, okay, okay. I, I do know that Lennon told someone that, you know, Paperback Writer, you know, at the time of oh, this is our new single, it's not actually very good. It's not the best one that we've done. Yeah, which, <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, which is quite revealing, really. But
0: um, Yeah, he doesn't seem to have rated it highly. But, um, no. yeah, he, he wrote Day Tripper, so maybe he was trying to imply there that Paul had kind of ripped off Day Tripper for his next single, I don't know. but uh,
1: Yeah, good point. Because, I, I, I mean, i do been like, I mean, it's interesting that he did that guitar that guitar riff for Paperback Writer, because it is very George Harrison. Mm. And in a way, because a lot of George Harrison's riffs were like were like re-inverted riffs from old rock and roll songs. Yeah. Like, I feel fine with watch this step, watch your step, and stuff like this. Mm. You know? And so he did a very good job of it. It's
0: so much heavier, though, the Paperback Writer riff, isn't it? If you listen to the, the yeah. riff on Day Tripper, which I think is a better yeah. riff, actually, but melodically... <laughs> but it's quite straight it's quite a thin straight sound whereas it the, is, the yeah. guitar sound on Paperback rice is really kind of raucous it's the first yeah, fuzz yeah. sound they've used i think
1: well i, I do know again with the, like with the whole microphone thing at Abbey Road any any requests for compressional fuzz were just met with absolute refusal by the engineers at <laughs> <Abbey> Road. <laughs> it was just everything they were you know they were trying to avoid in their heads so they did not want anything to have overdrive on it in in any you know stable in the black kind of thing you know so so you have yeah again you have to like break the rules to get the good stuff you know
0: yeah i read that it was this song that influenced the monkeys to write their first single
1: oh wow right okay
0: but yeah, The monkeys' debut single, Last Train to Clarksville, was written by Tommy Boyce and Bobby Hart, was directly inspired by hearing Paperback Writer on the radio. Boyce heard the end of the song and thought Paul was singing Take the Last Train rather than Paperback Writer. So they used similar chord structures, the harmonies and guitars, to try and match that feel. So
1: I mean, that's a, that's a good enough reason for a title as anything, I think. If you heard something that isn't even there, you know, just <laughs> take it and run with it. Can be here by 4:30, because I've made your reservation, don't be slow. No, 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 no. No,
0: no, no, no. You're not alone in in uh, favouring this one. Ed Harcourt.
1: Oh, no, I, I like Ed Harcourt.
0: He says, um, one of the best songs Paul wrote, paperback writer, at his total peak, I reckon. I love the fact that he made a real effort to write a song that wasn't about love because his aunt apparently asked him to. I find George's guitar licks quite difficult to play. Um, he di- obviously didn't know that it was Paul no. uh, but then I'm not really a proper guitar player these particular recordings given what they were recorded on at the time still feel yeah. so much more original than most pop music today in arrangement and sound now, another person who said it was one of their favourite songs and intriguingly we don't have his reasoning but is Frank Zappa he he famously knocked the Beatles a lot and his, I think it was his third album with the Mothers of Invention was called We're Only In It For The Money and had a big pastiche of Sgt Pepper's on the cover <laughs> <laughs> um, it was pretty clear where he was coming from but he did say in an interview no I like their music I liked well he said I like three songs Paperback Writer, Strawberry Fields and I Am The Walrus My goodness. but unfortunately we never got yeah never got his reasoning
1: I Am The Walrus completely get that with Frank Zappa Strawberry Fields probably but he, yeah Paperback Writer" you just would not you would thought, you would have thought it was far too safe <laughs> a song for him to be interested in
0: I managed to dig out a sound check where Zappa is taking his band through paperback writer to perform at a concert um and it seems like he's really enjoying the riff he's enjoying explaining the riff he's enjoying explaining the harmonies at the beginning and, and through the song uh, and he's even got the horn sections doing that harmony as well so yeah I, I think he saw those elements that we talked about which was you know the driving riff the harmonies yeah. seeing it all work together he seems to be enjoying get, getting that out of his bag. Oh, that's
1: interesting yeah <sighs>
0: Thank yes. saxon did a cover you know oh, saxon really who were uh, the, yeah. uh, the vanguard of british heavy new british heavy metal weren't they
1: they used to play in a local pub when i was growing up they were they were called they were called son of a bitch back then and they used to come, uh, come over the pennines from yorkshire and uh, descend on this place and uh, take the place apart they were they were very good at what they did
0: i mean there is a very straight cover a straight rendition but uh, it does work as a heavy metal song but you imagine it would be straight just but even, even more fuzz on it Oh, one one other little um, thing. Uh, Mick Jagger was in the studio when they recorded Paperback Writer. did not know if you knew that.
1: Well, George Harrison said years ago, um, you know, quite sardonically, oh, yeah, Mick was always hanging around (laughs) seeing what he could filch, (laughs) idea one, or something like that. You know, he didn't actually say that. But you you, you got the feeling that Mick was always really worried about what the Beatles were up to because he was so bloody competitive, you know, and um, I mean, I'm sort of with you in many ways about the Stones, you know, (laughs) because, you know, you... You compare, you compare them all. I mean, there's, there's a lot of albums that I love, like Let It Be, but the big problem I have, well, I don't really like Jagger's voice, and I know I'm not alone. I don't think it's a great voice. Right. Um, mm. He's clearly a great performer.
0: Oh, um, yeah, I wouldn't deny that, yeah.
1: And he's clearly very smart, and he's the reason, someone once said, he's the reason that, that, band, that Keith Richards didn't end up in a band like swinging blue jeans, you know, that was yeah. just lost, you know, because of Mick Jagger, he had the drive and the intelligence to kind of, Yeah. but yeah, you know, the Beatles, I mean, you know, I, I mean, take the Beatles and Bowie over the stones anytime, you know.
0: So Neil, it's been a great pleasure talking to you. Can you tell us um, how listeners can find out more about what you do, um, whether it's your band or your writing?
1: It's furlined.co.uk. And we're on Bandcamp, and I can't remember the exact uh, URL of the
0: Bandcamp. If you send it to me, I'll um, drop it in the show notes, so it'll show up when people are listening, yeah. Yeah,
1: perfect. Great.
0: Great. Well, thanks so much, Neil, for taking part. Thank you, Tim. I've enjoyed it. That was great. Thanks for listening to my favourite Beatles song. I'll be publishing new episodes every two weeks, so please subscribe through your favourite podcast provider to get episodes as they're released. If you like the podcast, please leave a review or rating as this helps us to reach new listeners. You can follow the podcast on Facebook and Instagram at My Beatles Song and Twitter at MyFaveBeatles. See you next time.